Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Humans have an uncanny ability to do the same thing over again and expect different results. But when the unbelievable strikes, it's still possible to predict trends and anticipate major change. Adam Robinson describes himself as a systems builder, a wizard, a shaman of global financial markets, and he's admired by thought leaders ranging from Warren Buffett to Tim Ferriss. In this conversation, we speak about thinking styles, mental models, and how not to be stupid, the title of his upcoming book. This conversation took place with a live online audience of tens of thousands around the world. Sign up at wiserconversations.org to participate live in the future. Why are there negative interest rates? The question that people should have been asking is, given that there are negative interest rates, which should not exist, what else don't I know about the world? Right? If that doesn't make sense, what else doesn't make sense? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. What's making sense and what isn't making sense at the moment in the world? So that's a, a good place to begin, things that don't make sense. And I, I actually first introduced that concept, the power of things that don't make sense, about four years ago with Tim Ferriss. And I, I said, when, when, when somebody says in as many words that something doesn't make sense, there's an enormous power behind that. Because really what the person is saying is, I have an understanding of the world, right? I have a model of the world that tells me stocks should be going up and gold should be going down and people should be friendly or whatever it is, a model of the world. And they don't encounter that. So they go, huh, that doesn't make any sense. And really what's going on is there's something outside their model, right? An anomaly that uh, outweighs everything within their model. And it's always incredibly powerful. 
So for example, if someone says, huh, it doesn't make any sense why this stock keeps going up day after day when it's losing money, um, then I know that stock has a lot further to go, right? So Ray Dalio back in uh, November 6th last year said, the world has gone mad and the system is broken. Right, the world has gone mad and the system is broken, which is the same thing as saying it doesn't make any sense, right? And if you think about that, you know, I, he's a he's a smart guy, but if you think about that, suppose Derek, you were driving along the the highway in New Zealand, and everybody on the road was driving erratically. In in your eyes, they were mad. What would you do? Slow down, stop. Slow down, he was driving erratically. What would you do? Uh, maybe I'd stop. Yeah, for sure. I hope you would. You'd get off the road. So it's interesting that Ray Dalio said the world has gone mad and the system is broken and didn't go all the cash 100%. You'd think he would have. And that was before the coronavirus. So this was Ray Dalio, one of the greatest investors of our generation. Yeah, well, it runs a... Right, runs Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in, um, right, I should have clarified for the audience. And um, so you'd think that he'd gone 100% cash, right? Like the, the investing equivalent of pulling off the road, but he did. Right. And Bridgewater has struggled this year. And in fact, I think they lost about 30% in, in the sell-off in uh, February. And here's the thing, if, what he was referring to last November was the presence of negative interest rates. And people, when they hear negative interest rates, a hard concept to get your head around, right? And so instead of asking, why are there negative interest rates? The question that people should have been asking is, given that there are negative interest rates, which should not exist, what else don't I know about the world, right? If that doesn't make sense, what else doesn't make sense? So the fact that we had negative interest rates, I'm not saying that predicted the coronavirus, but something like that would have happened. Because after all, we had, we had negative oil prices on one day in April, negative oil prices, which I think it was April 23rd. If you had a barrel, an empty barrel, you would have been paid $36.73 to take the oil away. Again, when things don't make sense over here, what else don't we know over there and about the whole world? And um, so that's, this, these are very strange times. It's like we all, we've all awakened to the Truman Show. How does that play out for individuals who are not in the markets, they're not investors, but in their own world trying to make sense of, I mean, people keep talking about when things go back to normal. Yeah, yeah. What does that even mean today? Yeah, they're, they're not going back to normal. And, you know, you can have a hope that things will go back to normal, but you look at the evidence. And again, once you have negative interest rates, which by classical economic and financial theory should not exist, right? Borrowers should pay. Lenders should get paid. But with negative interest rates, it's the reverse. Borrowers get paid to borrow. Lenders pay for the privilege of lending. Oil should cost some money. You shouldn't show up with an empty barrel and they'll say, thank you for taking this oil off our hands, right? Imagine going to a restaurant, you go in and, and they say, oh, we're paying everybody to eat our food. And so, so given that, what we know is that 
the world is greatly askew and all old models, you have to essentially start from scratch and work from what we know. And, and what we know, for example, is that, is that the global economy has been shut down for a virus the, whose lethality or fatality level is, is still uncertain, greatly uncertain. And nowhere near, it's, it's not like it's Ebola or something. And so, so things aren't going back to normal because they're not normal now. There's no catalyst that's gonna get us back to normal. The, the point was, it wasn't sustainable last year. I mean, we had negative interest rates. Right. Again, really what someone would have to say is, when will we go back so that we'll never get negative interest rates again or negative price of oil or pandemics that could happen at any moment? Or closed borders. Closed borders, right, right. So as a starting point, people should ask, what do I know, right? What's, what's important to me? What are people buying um, as opposed to what should they be buying? Really right. to see clearly, not what you hope. And most people are really blind to what's actually going on in the world because they've got models, right? They keep hoping things are going to re return to normal. And meanwhile, they're missing what's actually going on. Right. So day to day for you, you said, you know, this kind of moment or what's happening is something you've been thinking about or not predicting or however you might frame it for a long time for everyone else, like me, like people on this, on this uh, Zoom, people listening to the podcast. Some are aware in the Truman Show. Some are thinking maybe we are going to get back to normal soon. Some are ignoring the Truman Show and they may be teachers, politicians, you know, brand managers, all sorts of jobs they might have. Um, what do you think is important for the everyday person to try and help them with mental models about how to reframe what is going on? It's not just this year. It's not, I think a lot of people think they can't wait for New Year's because next year is going to be something totally fresh and new. Like can't wait to get rid of 2020. Yeah, but they thought that at the beginning of the summer, they thought, Remember, it was the spring. Oh, good. Now it's the summer. And by the fall, everything will return back to normal. And now they're going, oh, well, come 2021, or we get a vaccine. But wait a second. We're in a world where negative interest rates occur and uh, a negative price of oil. And essentially what's happened is this. Since the end of World War II, 75 years ago, the global economy was built on the American dream. I'm gonna explain why the world is the way it is in a nutshell, is that it was never sustainable. So at the end of World War II, we're coming out of the depression in World War II, right? And so you've got what, 16, 17 years of pent up demand. People have been depression, World War II, and the GIs come home and all of a sudden the American dream is born. I want what my parents had, I just want more of it right? They had a home. I want a bigger home. In fact, I want two. I want two of everything. And I'm willing to go into debt to get that. And that's the problem, the debt. So debt works if you can grow your way out of it, right? And there are only two sources of growth in the world, population growth and consumption growth. And the problem in the modern world is that states, governments, and, and individuals have piled up 
so much debt that it requires the world to keep growing at an ever-increasing pace. The problem is the world is shrinking right now, shrinking. Never occurred to anyone that population would collapse, and that's what's going on. So in the United States, every country in Europe, Australia, probably New Zealand, Canada, and Japan, every one of those countries, more people died last year than were born. You got to let that land. More people died than were born. It's shrinking. And yet we've piled up debt that required continued growth. And, and so what's happened is we built a world that required perpetual growth. And it never occurred to anyone, what happens if we shrink? And so, um, and every, what, eight, nine, 10 years, we run into an, a global financial collapse. And the solution of the central bankers is what? Pile up more debt. And at a certain point, we're going to have to have a reset. There's just too much debt. Is this the beginning of the reset or is it just the beginning of the beginning? Um, oh, that's very Churchillian of you, that, uh, <laughs> that quote, that famous quote. Um, well, I, I think a reset's coming really soon, a financial reset. And because the world as it is, the average debt per American is last year, this is last year before COVID, it was $91,000. 48, this is again, last year, 48% of American adults had $0 in the bank. Think about that. $0 in the bank, but $90,000 and $91,000 in debt. I don't mean zero as in a little bit. I mean, literally zero. Mm. There's no way that's getting paid back. No way. No mm. way. And, and the global average is about $40,000. By average, I mean, I'm including someone who's 102 in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. I'm including someone earning, you know, $3 a day in, in some developing nation. It's very serious. And, you know, you asked, what can people do? And I think it starts with an inventory of what we actually know. So for example, there are a lot of things that people know that are actually incorrect. So for example, people know that real estate always goes up in value. They know this. Doesn't even occur to them to question that. But no, real estate can go down for decades. Doesn't always go up. And so um, here's another one. A college education is a good investment. People know this. Doesn't even occur to them to question that. And so people make major life decisions based on assumptions that aren't actually valid. You know, they go into massive debt, massive mm -hmm. student debt here in the States um, on assumptions that never even bothered to think about. And I, so I think it, it started, that would be a good place for people to, is what do I actually know when I make these life decisions? Right. That'd be a good starting point. You know, you have had a uh, long relationship with Warren Buffett, I guess actually the, the, the most famous investor of our generation way, way above Ray Dalio. Um, but one of the things I heard uh, about was his calendar, his planner. Yes, yes. That I think is a really interesting example to share with, with people. When it comes to trying to understand what it is you know, at least for me, if I don't have the time to pull everything out of my life to go down into, well, what is it I actually know or what is it I'm actually feeling 
it just gets crammed into one endless stream, right? So let's talk about Warren's uh, calendar planner and why that's so important. Yeah, well, I remember, if you think about it, everything Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger ever said about investing, and by the way, the way they invest is the culmination of a profound philosophy, really a whole metaphysics. People view them as um, investors who happen to philosophize, but they're really philosophers, literally philosophers, who happen to invest. And the way they invest is an expression of their philosophy. So, for example, they sat down, I don't know, 60 odd years ago, and posed themselves the following question. Given a world where it's too complex to know everything, right? Given a world. And given a world where my knowledge is incomplete and may be mistaken, given a world where my reasoning is uh, maybe fallible, and given that I don't know what you know, right? You're, you're on the other side of the transaction. Is it possible to invest and know with certainty that you will grow your money? That's the, that's the philosophical problem they, they set themselves. And the way they invest is the answer to that. And so if you think about it, you can invest money and, and your most precious resource is investing your time, right? And Buffett likened the stock market to uh, a game of baseball, like you're standing, but you can let the pitches come by all day long, right? Tesla, 432, you just let that one zip by, right? Google, 295, let it zip by. But every once in a while, there's a really great pitch, right? A great company at a good to fair price. Hard to get a great company at a great price, but at least a great company at a good price. And you swing for the fences for those. And the same thing is true in life with people, right? Every day are all kinds of invitations. We meet this person and that, right? And each of them, like the batting uh, example, is an invitation. You could swing at it or not. Remember what you're swinging at, at one person, you're not swinging at a bunch of others. And so if you view life like that as, as pitched invitations, and you wait, you really wait for, well, in baseball terms, they call them fat pitches, like really sweet, like, again, a great person, or a great stock, and, and everything else you let go by. And he does that with his time, Buffett. So the first time I ever met him, he, it was a dinner, and uh, he held up for everybody, he held up his uh, yearly planner. And it was literally the size of, it was smaller than this uh, post-it pad. And he, he flipped through it, every page was empty. That was, his, that was his yearly planner. He didn't want any interruptions. Like all he does is stay focused on, on his investing. By the way, people forget, they don't, Derek, I don't know if you know this, but there's one word that has appeared in almost every interview that Buffett has ever given over the last 30, 40 years. And the word is fun. <laughs> He's having a blast. He just happens to have a blast investing, right? So, so what, we, what can we take away from that if we're not him and we live ordinary lives and we can't do that, uh, but it's the idea that we need to do a version of it, a small piece of it, an example of it. Well, wait, I think everyone can do that in their lives. I mean, I just said, for example, the people that enter your life, who are you gonna spend time with? 
right? Right. And the time you spend with someone that's a friend, you could like that person, is time you're not spending with one of your dear hearts, right? Someone that you really care about. It's always a choice. And I think one thing that, that 2020 has invited everybody to do is to prioritize what's important to you, right? And what, uh, what matters and, and to spend more time with those people. And I'm sure even in New Zealand, your circle of friends has shrunk way down and there are a few people that you spend a lot of time with and everyone else is kind of on the periphery. You know, you may make a call once uh, every few months, maybe. And so I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really good thing for the, for the world. And um, so I take stock of, of what you value and which, again, everything is an invitation. You can either swing in it or let it go by. And yeah, don't swing at too many things. You um, have shared an idea uh, around balancing your own introversion and extroversion. You kind of thought of it as like breathing in terms of going out into the world, coming back into your own uh, sense of solitude. I think that's such a beautiful um, metaphor or idea uh, that people would love to hear about. Sure. So, you know, growing up, I was an introvert, like on a scale of if there's a hundred on the introvert scale and a hundred on the extrovert scale, like a spectrum, I was solidly a hundred in the introverted scale. I mean, there were people in high school, for example, that had never seen me speak. I was just really quiet and, uh, and gradually began to, to come out. And I, I've lived my whole life with, in the world of ideas, right? Because I'm an introvert. And I don't, it was about, it was one day about five years ago, Derek, I, I literally, I woke up and I went, wow, there are a lot of people in this world. I could be having a lot of fun. And, and I turned the same, you know, zeal for ideas to zeal for people. And so when I'm home alone, I'm in introvert mode, but literally, so it's like inhaling. And literally the moment I walk out my door, I can't wait to see who I'm going to encounter. Could be, could be an old man in an elevator. And that'll be just as exciting to me as, as anyone else I could possibly meet. And you, you know, I, again, I talked about this with Tim about leaning into each moment in every encounter, expecting magic or miracles. And I actually live that way. I literally assume that the entire universe is punking me every day in the best possible way. And I, I can't wait to get outside and see, okay, who am I going to meet? You know? And when I tell you the, the amazing, literally miracles that have happened that way. And, uh, you know, it's uh, like how I met Bob Fisher, how I met Andy Warhol, you know, Buffett even, you know, just out of the blue. And when you get in that mood, the, the way to think about it is this. Think about yourself, Derek, you. When's your birthday? 24th of February. Okay. So, um, so does that make you Pisces? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm right after you. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm uh, March 21st. So I know that you, on February 23rd, around midnight, you know, you, you know that you're going to start getting emails from people who know and love you. Right. And, you know, the next day, any number of presents await and surprises and and, you know, that you're going to be delighted throughout the day. You don't know who's going to do what, but, you know, it's coming. 
I have that feeling every single day when I walk out of my apartment. I just assume that some stranger is going to come up to me and and with a present. <laughs> that is so beautiful. How did you make that switch? So decades of decades of being in your in your head. I have no idea. I have no idea. It's people ask me that and they go, "Well, what switch?" So one day, really, I just woke up and uh, and started to have fun with everybody around me with no agenda, other than creating fun and delight with enthusiasm. And, you know, the word enthusiasm, Derek, is a lot of people don't know what it actually means, right? It, it, it comes from the ancient Greek meaning to be filled with God. That's what enthusiasm is. And really, when I get outside, I, I, the universe, I, I figure, is, is, is working in my favor. That's such an incredible idea that I think is really worth taking in for a minute, you know, behaving as if every day it's your birthday that you're going to expect those things that you manage to be able to do once or twice a year, like your birthday. Some of us might do that at a Christmas. Like you walk out into the world with a different sense of being and you look at everyone differently. You smile at everyone differently because either it's it's your day or it's our day. But the other 362 days, it's not like that, but it doesn't have to be. Is what you're saying. You can flip it. And I, it's not a belief. It's just a knowledge. I just go out in the world knowing that that's going to happen. And, and it does. And, and, and by the way, my excitement and enthusiasm rubs off on everybody who meets me. Right? Then they get excited. They can feel it, sense it. So you talked briefly, you mentioned Bobby Fischer. So you used, I don't know if you still play a lot of chess, you used to play a lot of chess yeah a um, lot and bobby fisher i don't know if many people today or on this might know who he is but you spent some time with him for a few years and what did, what have you learned tell, tell us who he is and and what chess has taught you so i'll give you an example of how that works so fisher when i met him it was in the two years leading up to his winning the world championship so at the the height of his powers and um when I was a freshman in high school, I, uh, a kid beat me in homeroom at chess. Like I, I knew the moves to the game, but that's all I knew. I'd never, it'd be like knowing the rules to cricket, but you've never picked up a bat, right? Like, okay. And, um, and I resolved to get good at chess. And I, I went to the local bookstore and the only book they had was a book of Bobby Fisher's games. And, um, and I played over these games. There were uh, uh, 64. 64 games. And I, how was, I was, let me see, I was 13. And, um, and I, I knew that he had played a lot of other games. So I, I went to the library every Saturday. I'd go to downtown Chicago from Evanston, take the, the train and spend hours going through back issues of chess magazines from all over the world, looking for games. And I'd collected about 600 of them. And I played over them over and over and over. So I knew them all by heart. And I, I didn't set out to memorize them. And uh, my junior year in high school, I became really good. And my senior year, we won the national championship. But, but the junior year in New York, we, we finished second. And my mother on Easter Sunday, so you got to imagine it's Easter Sunday, packed all of New York, packed, you know, people celebrating Easter. And I told my mother I would spend the day with her and we were headed towards Central Park. 
And out of the corner of my eye, across Broadway and Sixth Avenue, in a crowd of people, I spotted Bobby Fisher. And I told my mother, I said, Mama, I know I said I'd spend a day with you, but that's my hero over there. I'll see you later. And I like I'm dodging cars and getting over there. And I, I ran up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Fisher, Mr. Fisher. And, you know, uh, in 1962 at the U.S. Championship, when you pl were playing Mrzewski, why did you play pawn to King Rook three on move six? Like I just blurted out those words because I knew all of his games by heart. So what were the odds, Derek, that I would encounter in a city with 10 million people on Easter Sunday, mind you, I didn't live in New York, that I would spot Bobby Fischer. I'll tell you what the odds were, 100%. And there's an engine to serendipity. And, uh, and, and one of the requirements is having a pure intention and um, that you just hold on to. And another one of the, the, the factors for serendipity is noticing what you notice. And you know, and really, what are the odds that in a city with 10 million people on Easter, that I would happen to be looking out of the corner of my eye as Bobby Fisher just happened to be walking by? You know, I don't know, 10,000 people in that corner that day. And, uh, and that's happened to me a lot, actually, in my life, that kind of thing. And, um, and so now, literally, when I go out, I expect things like that to happen every day. And whether it's meeting someone or, and by the way, I'm also doing things, right? That maybe someone I can help. Mm. And uh, so that's the way I, I live my life. I choose to live it that way. It's not a, it's not a belief. Mm. I have a blast all the time, every day. What about chess itself? What, what, what metaphors of, for life from that? So that's a really interesting question. So chess, if you think about it, chess, I don't know what, in its modern form has been around like a thousand years. And there've been a lot of smart people to play the game. And so over the years, there've been a lot of um, rules about the game, right? If this and this is true, then always move your knight over here, right? A, a series of rules developed over, over you know, the last millennium. And then computers came along. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, DeepMind's AlphaZero uh, chess. Yeah, these are the big, the big artificial intelligence computers from Google and IBM and other big companies. But DeepMind did something no one had ever thought of doing before. So before, they had programmed computers with the best human games, right? And DeepMind said, what if we don't program the computer with any games? We just give it the rules and let the computer play itself. And in four hours, DeepMind had surpassed all human knowledge of the game, four hours. It had recreated everything we knew about the game and then a bunch of other things we didn't know about the game. And that's fascinating. And you know, a lot of the rules that, that we developed as, as chess masters were rules based on our limited processing capacity. And for example, our tendency to make mistakes. And yet a computer doesn't make mistakes. And so it literally, imagine giving DeepMind the rules of syntax and in four hours it recreates every human language known to man. That's what it did. And, 
and its level of play now is, boy, it's hard to describe. If the world, you, if the human world champion played deep mind a hundred games, Magnus Carlsen, he'd be lucky to get one victory out of a hundred. He'd be lucky. He'd be lucky to get a few draws. He'd, he'd probably get a few draws out of a hundred games and lose the rest. That's how much better computers are than human beings. And the, and the style of play is totally different. It's really fascinating. It's kind of the same, but then it starts playing alien chess. And um, so given that, yeah. Okay, we can't beat the computers, but what, what do we learn from that? And what other ideas uh, from chess are parallels to life? I know you spoke, I've heard you talk about once Bobby Fischer's opening move kind of story where he had the same way of doing something for a very long time, but had a longer game in mind. That There's lots of ideas in chess that could be fascinating for, for people to, to take in. The key thing about that, you know, the application is that, is that the game of chess, the rules that we developed, say we, chess masters over, you know, centuries, masters and grandmasters, had embedded assumptions in it that the computers revealed were merely assumptions. And so, so the larger lesson is what other domains in our life are embedded with assumptions that computers, if we don't program them with what human beings know, we just sort of let them loose, what amazing discoveries are they gonna make? And, um, and that's, that's really exciting, you know? Mm. The one thing about chess and the difference between chess and life is that chess is a board where you can see all the, all the pieces. And I don't know what you're thinking, my opponent, but we all see all the pieces. And so you can't do something without my knowing. I mean, I, I won't know what your plan is, but I, you, you, I, I, I see the move, which is different from poker, right? Poker, I don't see your cards. I see some of them maybe. Um, and so, so the metaphor for life, you know, with chess, it's very different because real life, the rules change. You don't see all the pieces, you know? And, and so gotta be careful with metaphors from chess to life or, or even sports to life. And uh, so you're absolutely right. There are lessons to be extracted, um, but, but not, gotta be careful about extending the metaphor too far. Adam. Uh, a number of the people we've had on have meditation as a practice. Uh, I try to have it as a practice, but never manage to keep it day in, day out. Um, what's your view on that? You know, you're a super analytical thinker. You think about things a lot. And I assume, I'm guessing that if before you adopted or embraced any kind of practice like meditation, you would have really looked at it as opposed to just picked up the book or the tape and just got into it. So, so Derek, where's my attention right now in the world? Right this very second, where's my attention? Right here. N not here, it's on you. Yeah, in the Zoom. It's not here, it's on you. And so even when I'm, I'm, I'm always meditating in the sense that whomever I'm with has my total attention, which is really, it's, it's real time mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, my, my maxim to create fun and delight for the other, I have to be totally focused on the other person. Mm. So everything I do and interact with people is a form of meditation. I mean that literally. I love that. 
And, and, but in terms of meditation that people would think about, you know, like a formal sitting, I use heart rate variability training. Uh, and I was introduced to that by Josh Waitskin. Um, and uh, he put me in touch with Dr. Leia Lagos. Dr. Leia Lagos. And, uh, you know, she's another guest you might want to have on your show. And she's probably the world's most foremost practitioner of heart rate variability training, which is a, a long mouthful, but it's a way to control your heart like a yogi um, through breath work and um, literally like a yogi um, in, in six to eight weeks with some biofeedback. You, you, you can do amazing things with your heart. And, um, you know, the ancients said that uh, the heart was the seat of emotions. And it's true. You know, if you think about it, Derek, in everyday life, we know we store our emotions in our body, right? Our shoulders get tense. And, you know, uh, for me, a lot of tension is stored in my calf muscles. And, and, and so our whole body is, is a, an emotional computer, our entire body, storing every emotion we feel, including the most important muscle of all, which is the heart. And with heart rate variability training, you, you, can, you learn to control your emotions and your heart by controlling your breathing. And um, so I would recommend people look, look up that. And Dr. Leia Lagos, L-A-G-O-S. She just came out with a book, in fact. And um, that's, that's like meditation for people who can't sit still. <laughs> and how does it show up for you on a in your day on a daily basis yeah i have a a biofeedback machine which allows me to it you know i hook it up to my finger which is actually registering the the pulse from my heart mm -hmm. and then i watch a computer screen do you know like there's one thing where like i try to make the roller coaster go faster right and where you can make a red ball get bigger and redder and so you get the the computer is giving you visual feedback on what your heart is doing. And, uh, and I also practice the breath work really at random moments throughout the day. You know, I, I could be in an elevator. If I'm alone in an elevator, I'll do breath work. Right. So you're carrying it with you. I think that's really uh, great. And I think your comment around always meditating is like, it, it's, it seems like the way to, to be approaching this whole idea, as opposed to putting it into a box and just saying once a day, X number of minutes, I will do this, whether it's to decompress or whatever. It seems like to carry it with you in the fullest, deepest sense of what it means to be present or mindful or whatever word it is you choose is the essence of what maybe we're missing in the kind of broader mass movement towards meditation, which is, you know, get the app, do it twice a day, and then go back to not really paying attention with the person you're with or the thing you're doing. Exactly right. And really to be fully engaged with another human being is the highest form of meditation. You're picking up so many cues if you're fully present for the other person. And, um, and, and by the way, for me, I don't, I, I literally don't know any other way to be. Um, first, because of the benefits I get 
Mm. And if I, if another person isn't worth my full attention, they're not worth my time. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be interacting with them. And um, so, so anyone I spend time with and even, even random people um, while I'm interacting with them, they have my full attention always. If I'm in public and anyone's interacting with me, they've got my hundred percent attention. You, you're right. Absolutely right. You can't, use an app for 20 minutes a day and think the other, I don't know, 23 hours and 40 minutes of the day, you can sort of live without that. It's not going to do any good. We have a really cool question around a, a quote about Bruce Lee or from Bruce Lee. Oh, my favorite philosopher. Yeah. And I love that you call him a philosopher. It's kind of like the philosopher of martial arts in the same way that Warren Buffett is a philosopher of investing, right? Um, so the quote is, I don't fear the man who's practiced 10,000 kicks, but the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Um, I think I've heard you talk about it in a similar way with regards to the hammer and nails metaphor. Um, so what, if, if you were to choose your kick, what would your kick be? What would that one kick that you're practicing 10,000 times be? You have to unpack, though, what Bruce Lee said. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm... Uh, his daughter, Shannon, is, is a dear heart of mine. I, and uh, she just came out with a new book, in fact, which I recommend everyone get, uh, you know, uh, reminiscences of with her dad. And, right. um, you know, the reason he feared the man who, who practiced one kick 10,000 times is not because that kick got really good, although it did. It's the force of will it took to focus like that. Don't mess with a guy who's got that kind of willpower. Right. And and that's really why Bruce Lee said he feared him. Not, Bruce Lee probably didn't fear anyone, you know, just, but if he were going to fear someone, fear the guy who practices one kick 10,000 times because that guy's got will that you don't want to mess with. Right. A focus. And and so. So what are my sort of kicks? Right. And, um, you know, you remember the karate kids speaking of uh, martial arts and no, it's, it's, it's really good. I'm glad that we're here yeah, with Mr. Miyagi and uh, Daniel. For Mr. Miyagi, and there was, there was uh, 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 paint the fence. Yeah, wax on. Uh, wax on, wax off, and the crane kicky move, right? And that's all he had. He had those four moves. And, and, you know, any of the greats, really any of the greats have a few moves that they practice to death. And, and so... What are mine? Mine are looking for things that don't make sense and, and staying with anomalies. I am really tenacious. And um, like I, Buffett gave me an endorsement for how not to be stupid a, a year and a half ago. And, and I've been wrestling with, I spent the last year, you'd think, well, just publish that. That's, that's pretty darn great. And, uh, and I, um, I've been wrestling with the question why human beings dismiss wisdom and uh, um, which is really <clears throat> a key problem in the human race. We've got really good at doing things, but mm. we don't know what to do, right? Our technology is, has way outpaced our, our wisdom in the world. And um, so I would say my tenacity with questions, my, my delving really deep, um, my, uh, my playfulness, right? I'm, I'm always engaging people. 
and uh and magic always happens and um and um and looking for things that don't make sense because mm. i i know if if somebody says something that doesn't make sense there's uh it's a gold mine right and i i set up camp there and i go great it doesn't make yeah. sense everyone's ignoring it you may remember the uh indiana jones um uh sorry raiders of the lost ark and there's a um there's a thing where they're 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 looking for the 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 ark of the covenant or something like that and and everybody's digging way over there near the near the pyramids as i recall and uh indy knows that you should be looking over here and and so i i look for things that don't make sense because i know everyone else is going to go oh and and walk away right and you know you just touched upon the book the how not to be stupid um someone's asked why did it take you one month i'm sure it took more than one month one month of hard thinking to define stupidity mm. because that's such a good question so yeah so when i wrote how not to be stupid literally it took me a solid month i, I came up with some four or five weeks just to define stupidity because most people take words as givens and they don't they don't actually think about them and if you deconstruct and really think about what words mean it forces you to delve deep and notice things that people don't think about here's for example people go hmm is the stock market going higher well, what the heck is the stock market and it seems like an obvious question but it's not mm. um, it took me golly, over a year to define what a trend is. And, and I, I actually think I'm the only person in the world who's ever defined a trend as opposed to like a continuation of prices. Like, like I mean a financial trend. And a financial trend is the spread of an idea. That's all a trend is. It's the spread of an idea. And so when you, when you redefine words, you begin to look at things in ways that pe people don't even wouldn't even occur to them because they're stuck on old definitions. So, right, if someone wants to explore a new area, I would focus on the basic definitions in that field. Mm. Like if I was gonna be a cancer researcher, I'd start off with defining cancer. It might take me, I don't know, one or two or three months just to come up with a definition. I wouldn't accept, you know, whatever in the, was in the medical dictionary, so. I love that. I think it's going back to first principles, right? I mean, your point about the stock market, and it took me all year to kind of get to see this one where you keep talking about whatever indices are, you know, that, that are in the US going up or down or at all times high. And then you peel it back and you're actually, well, actually what they mean is these five companies are valued more than, you know, whether it's Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google. And when you start to realize that that's what people are repeating, because that's what makes up the large proportion of the index, and you start to realize that that's what people are repeating thousands of times a day on every radio station and every TV channel and every website all around the world that the stock market is doing this or that. But what they actually mean is these five companies are worth so much now that this is what they're doing. And it should be just totally redefined. But as you say, people walk through and don't question. And then the things just get a life of their own until someone somewhere questions the whole thing. And I think that's what you're saying is, is, uh, part of your kick or one of your kicks is, is right is is 
is rethinking things from basic principles. And that's another thing people can do in their lives mm. is, is, is start off with something everybody takes for granted and start with basic principles and really spend, you know, weeks or months examining that with no other agenda, just digging deeper and deeper. Because if you accept the standard definitions and the standard framework, you're going to be thinking about it the same way everybody else thinks about it. You're not going to come up with anything new. Well, the university one you mentioned, you know, half an hour ago is really a good one. I think for right now, like it's just gotten so accepted that that's the right thing to do with four years of your life and anywhere from, you know, 50 to $250,000, depending on your opportunity cost, the cost of living, the cost of tuition and fees. Like it really is something that is quite bananas in terms of how accepted it is. Um, but there'll be many and many of those things. That, that, that debt that you acquire forces you to make certain life choices right after college, right? You actually don't have any freedom. You've immediately got to start paying off those loans. So all of a sudden, a, a cascade of, of life choices is dictated. Mm -hmm. you, you don't actually have any freedom anymore. Mm -hmm. And so a college degree is the way to think about it is you're acquiring debt. <laughs> and what are the opportunities that I, as well as you mentioned, right, opportunity cost that, that this education will afford me? And, and are there other ways I could come by this, this knowledge and, um, or these qualifications? It's another giant example of the bats and the swinging at bat. You, you know, and one question here, which is really lovely is what do you use, Adam, to guide you in deciding which invitations to take a swing at and which to let go by? So, so I divide up the world into two, the world, the universe, into two, <laughs> into two modalities, elixirs and poisons. And an elixir is anyone or anything, could even be an idea that, uh, nourishes me, you know, it, mm, uh, yummy, it, I'm, I'm, I'm invigorated by it, I'm inspired by it, and could be, um, you know, a dog playing with a ball, elixir for me, roomy poetry, elixir, talking with you, Derek, elixir, um, analyzing something, elixir, certain music, elixirs, uh, certain individuals, elixirs, again, anything that I'm, I'm enriched by and, and excited by and, and improved by. And poisons are everything else. And I, I was floating this by a, a dear heart of mine and she said, but Adam, why is it so binary? Why aren't there neutrals? And I said, no, neutrals don't exist because of the opportunity cost. <laughs> the neutrals taken up the, the spot of, a, of an elixir. Like, why would I be with a neutral when I could have been with an elixir? And when you start to edit your life like that, the more elixirs you expose yourself to, the less patience you have for anything that's not or anyone who's not. And, you know, they're, they're perfectly lovely people, I'm sure. I, I, I know in my life I have, and I'm sure you have in yours, and, and uh, that you know and you like. Um, but maybe they're not elixirs. And, you know, again, things that you're you're enriched by, you, you vibrate at a higher level. You're actually being in their presence. You are uplifted somehow. 
And again, a person could be an idea, could be a city, could be anything. And, um, and so my touchstone is, is whatever I'm doing, is it an elixir? Because if it's not, it's a poison. And I, I, I don't have any time for it. Because I'm, I'm a predator for elixirs. I'm always on the prowl for elixirs. <laughs> that is so pure and clear for you. But going back to your friend's question about the neutral ones, as you're going through this, what about things that come your way that you're not sure? Like, how do you, how does that come up? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, because right, any given day, you could meet someone new. Maybe this person's an elixir. It doesn't take long to figure out. And the thing is, you don't, you know, I think people, we, we, we have a tendency to invest a lot of time Maybe this person is an elixir. Maybe this person is my soulmate or whatever it is, right? And, and the thing is, the time you're investing is, is time you're not spending with other elixirs. And, and at a certain point, you just if you know what you're looking for and, and you know where the elixirs are, it shouldn't take you long to figure out, is this person an elixir or not? And... Right, you shouldn't have to read a complete book of poetry to realize whether the the poems are worth reading, right? I don't know, by page one or two or three. So there's a space there. There's a space where, for a little while, you do give it an opportunity to prove itself, sure, and make a decision, and just don't overinvest in that you direction. Invest, and I, I think we tend to do that. And and by the way, we overinvest in that because we're not committed elsewhere, right? If you're really committed to doing something in the world, uh, then you won't have a lot of spare time. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, together at home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.